This is The Reckoning. I'm Dan Gediman. Many of us have heard the phrase, 40 acres and a mule. It refers to Union General William Sherman's 1865 General Order 15, which proposed redistributing confiscated Southern land to newly freed African Americans. Land, and the ability to work it, could have been a step toward restitution for more than 100 years after enslavement. General Sherman's plan never came to pass. It was rescinded the following year by President Andrew Johnson. But during that same era, there were other smaller, more personal efforts to seek reparations. The most successful was a lawsuit brought by a formerly enslaved woman from Kentucky named Henrietta Wood. We'll explore her courageous story in this episode of our podcast. This is The Reckoning. I can't quite guess my age, but I guess I might be about 58 or 59 years old. In 1876, Henrietta Wood sat down to tell her story to a journalist from a Cincinnati newspaper. She'd been born into slavery on a farm along the Ohio River in Boone County, Kentucky. I lived on the farm till I was about 14 years old when old Moses Towser died and there was a division of the property among the children. Then the old man's son, Homer Towser, I think his name was, came down from Indianapolis where he lived to see after things, and we were all sold. I was taken together with my brothers and one sister to Louisville and sold there to Mr. Henry Forsyth, for $700. He did not buy my brothers and sisters, and I never saw them since. For the next few years, Henrietta Wood's story was a typical one for the time. She worked in Forsyth's home in Louisville until he sold her to a French immigrant, William Serode, who took her to New Orleans. When Serode abandoned his family and went back to France, his wife, Jane Serode, moved the family to Cincinnati, Ohio, and opened a boarding house, eventually bringing Henrietta with her. The move to Cincinnati was pivotal for Henrietta Wood. Because of the laws of the state of Ohio at the time, any person of color who entered the state had to be registered as free before they could be employed. That's Caleb McDaniel, professor of history at Rice University and author of a book about Henrietta Wood called Sweet Taste of Liberty, A True Story of Slavery and Restitution in America, which won the Pulitzer Prize in 2020. McDaniel says Jane Serode did just as she was required. She went to a county courthouse there in Cincinnati and recorded Henrietta Wood's freedom and Wood received a copy of her freedom papers. And so she began for the next few years to live in freedom. It was a period that she later referred to as her sweet taste of liberty. Henrietta Wood continued to work for Jane Serode for two years, but Serode rarely paid Wood her wages. Because she was free, Henrietta went in search of other employment, finding work with various families and boarding house owners, including a Mrs. Boyd the wife of a dentist and owner of a boarding house in Cincinnati. 
Mrs. Boyd, she came to me one Sunday night and said, Henrietta, I want you to come over the river with me. I have some friends to see, and we can be back in time for supper. She also asked me if I would like a nice carriage ride, and I said yes. I never suspected anything. The carriage went over the river to Covington, Kentucky, then deeper into the countryside. Three men were waiting. One of them was Zebulon Ward, a deputy sheriff in Covington. I was ordered to get out of the hack, and one of the men said to me, Don't run or I'll shoot you. I said, I've got nothing to run for. And one of the men said, she talks mighty big, don't she? Another came up close and looked into my face with a mean sort of look and said, don't you know me? Then they all laughed. And while I was looking right at Mrs. Boyd, I saw one of the men hand her a roll of money. Zebulon Ward had set up a scheme with Mrs. Boyd to kidnap Wood and return her to slavery. It was the sort of kidnapping that happened all the time to free black people, especially in border regions like Cincinnati. There is a key piece of information that I think is worth sharing about uh, Jane's daughter and son-in-law, if I remember the story correctly, Mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. are the ones who set this uh, drama in motion um, to trick her to cross the river to Kentucky. Right. So Rhodes' family didn't all agree with her decision to take Wood to Cincinnati when they thought of Henrietta Wood and the other people their father had uh, enslaved. Sir Rhodes' daughter and son-in-law only thought of the inheritance money that they would lose if Wood was liberated. And so they were the ones who approached Zebulon Ward and informed them about Wood's existence across the river. They lived in Covington, Kentucky at the time, and set in motion the the kidnapping plot. So the next twist in the story is that uh, Henrietta, for the first time, and but not the last time, sticks up for herself and says, hey, wait, 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 hold on, this is, this is not right, uh, and uh, turns to the courts in Kentucky to try to reverse what had happened. Can you tell that story? Well, Henrietta Wood began telling her story uh, almost from the earliest hours of her abduction. She was taken to a hotel or sort of a roadside inn in the small town of Florence, Kentucky, where many travelers from the river would stop after making the long climb from the Ohio River. And so while she was confined by her abductors in this roadside inn in Florence, she told what had happened to a sympathetic innkeeper there, a man whose name she remembered as Williams. And Williams was able to follow her to Lexington, where the kidnappers intended to sell her to slave traders there. And he was able to get some help to file a lawsuit in the Fayette County courts that argued that Henrietta Wood was rightfully a free woman. This was something that most Southern states did have a legal process for at the time. There was such a thing as a freedom suit where people could sue to show that they were 
wrongfully enslaved. It required the assistance of a lawyer or someone who was free to appear on their behalf before the court, but uh, it did sort of allow some people to uh, go to the courts and tell their story if they had been been kidnapped. And that's what Henrietta Wood did. A suit was filed in 1853 that then dragged on for another year before the court ruled against her and dismissed her petition for freedom. After that, her lawyers appealed the case to the Court of Appeals, the state is the state's highest court in Kentucky, and that court upheld the lower court's decision. And so two years after her freedom suit began, she was ruled to be the slave of Zebulon Ward. And then he in turn sells her to mm-hmm. slave traders, right? Mm-hmm. Right. For a time, he took her to Frankfurt, Kentucky. Frankfurt was the capital of the state then, and uh, also the home of the Kentucky State Penitentiary. And in the middle of Wood's freedom suit, Zebulon Ward had become the keeper of the state penitentiary in Frankfurt. And so for a brief time, Wood moved to Frankfurt and was made to work in his household there. But he ultimately sold her back to some slave traders in Lexington who took her to Natchez, Mississippi. Mr. Wilson, who lived in Natchez, wanted to buy me the first time he saw me to do washing and ironing, but the traders wouldn't sell me to him. They said that Ward had told him to get me out on a plantation and not sell me to anyone in town because I'd raise another suit in the courts. So they sold me to an old cotton planter named Gerard Brandon for $1,080. Gerard Brandon was one of the largest slaveholders in the country, and Wood suffered the same as all of the enslaved who toiled in the cotton fields of the Deep South. Along the way, she gave birth to a son, Arthur. When Lincoln announced the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, Brandon marched everyone from Mississippi to Texas to keep them away from federal troops. The 13th Amendment in December 1865 ended slavery, but it would take Wood another three years to be completely free of Brandon. When she was finally able to scrape together enough money, she took her son and headed back north. When Henrietta Wood returned to the Cincinnati area after the Civil War, she managed by 1870 to locate a lawyer in Covington, Kentucky, named Harvey Myers, who helped her to file a suit for restitution. And in her petition, Wood made clear that she was suing Zebulon Ward both for the damages caused by her abduction in 1853, but also for all of the wages that she had lost while she was enslaved, both by Ward and by Gerard Brandon, the man who purchased her in Mississippi. And so the petition made clear that this was not just a suit about her kidnapping, but it was really about slavery itself and about the unrequited toil that she had um, endured for so many years. And so she sued for $20,000. In the end, she would receive only a fraction of that amount, but I think it's an indication of how she and her lawyer 
thought about the suit, that uh, it was a suit that raised basic questions about what freedom meant without restitution and what was owed to people who had labored in slavery for so long. I'm curious how they put a price tag on her labor while she was enslaved. The petition that Wood filed in, in court said that she could have made up to $500 a year while working as a free woman during her, her second enslavement. So the $20,000 represented both that figure uh, in addition to the damages that she had suffered uh, due to her enslavement. So she asked for $20,000. What she got was $2,500. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how the jury came up with that number. There was a lot of speculation among commentators after the suit about how the jury had determined the amount that they would award Wood. It was a small fraction of what she had sued for, and it could indicate that although Wood and her lawyer viewed the suit as about slavery itself, that the jury was really focused on the kidnapping that had occurred in 1853 and sort of narrowly limited the uh, judgment to what they believed she was owed for that kidnapping. Uh, some commentators speculated that the jury might even have figured out what she uh, could have been sold for um, in the mid-1850s and calculated the amount on the basis of her market value, if you will, in the domestic slave trade before the Civil War. But we don't know exactly how the jury came to that decision. We do know that the judge, in giving the jury instructions, certainly uh, encouraged them to think of the case in narrow terms. Whereas Wood and her lawyer thought of this as about slavery itself, he encouraged them to focus on the question of whether she had been free in 1853 when she was kidnapped and enslaved. And so that could uh, explain why the jury gave her so much less than what she had asked. So even though the amount of the settlement was far less than she wanted, uh, what she got was $2,500, which is roughly $65,000 today. Mm -hmm. It would have represented a significant windfall for a former slave at that time. And mm -hmm. what, what kind of impact did that money have on Henrietta and her son? In 1878, $2,500 was a significant sum of money. It would amount to uh, well over $60,000 in today's dollars. And so although Wood may well have understood this amount as insufficient, it certainly wasn't inconsequential for her life and the life of her son. Wood had a son named Arthur Sims who had been born in Mississippi after her kidnapping. And so he was born enslaved because of the laws of Mississippi at the time. But he returned with Wood to the Cincinnati area after the Civil War and he observed uh, her victory in court. And after that victory, Wood and Arthur uh, moved to Chicago, where the money that Wood won made a big difference for him and his descendants. In the 1880s, Sims was able to purchase a house in Chicago outright uh, for around $1,600. And we know from the history of the time that homeownership rates were very low 
for uh, wage workers in Chicago in the 1880s, and especially low for African Americans. So to be able to purchase a house outright, it seems to me very probable that Arthur Sims was, was able to use the money that Wood had won from uh, court to purchase that house. And that house became then a very fruitful asset for Arthur and his family. He used it to take out loans and lines of credit and secure cash that enabled him to go to school. He later became one of the first African-American graduates of the Union College of Law, which later became the Northwestern University Law School. And he practiced law in Chicago until his death in 1951. And so it's possible by following his story to see the real difference that even a small amount of restitution made for Wood and her descendants. You mentioned it in passing, but uh, and I don't know how much you looked into this when you were doing your research, but um, how how rare or uh, common was Henrietta's predicament where people of color who were free, who were living in border states like Indiana and Ohio, uh, were then either just flat out kidnapped or somehow coerced into uh, back into slavery. Well, Wood's victory was extraordinary and in some ways exceptional, but what had happened to her, uh, her predicament, was not uncommon at all. Historians know that free people of color living along the borders with slave states in the Ohio River Valley were at constant uh, risk of being kidnapped and sold into slavery, especially after the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 made it much easier for would-be enslavers to enter free states and claim that free people of color were actually fugitive slaves. And without providing much evidence to demonstrate their case, they could uh, take people back into Kentucky and sell them far down the river before a hue and cry could be raised. And so um, many abolitionists at the time raised uh, awareness of this problem. Uh, the newspapers contained many stories of kidnappings from the streets of cities like Cincinnati. And even after Wood won her victory in 1878, many uh, newspapers commented that there were many stories like hers uh, that they could remember from the antebellum years. And some predicted that there would be other such suits, given how common they knew such kidnappings were. Um, you know, the kidnappers like Zebulon Ward and the slave traders he was in cahoots with understood that, that they were engaged in a criminal enterprise, but they also knew that most of the time kidnappers could get away with that sort of thing. Um, the slave traders who took wood to Mississippi made a point to sell her to a plantation in the countryside away from Natchez uh, to prevent her from making contact with lawyers there who might have heard her story and advanced her, her claims in court. And over the antebellum period, many Southern states made it much more difficult for plaintiffs to sue for freedom in state courts and even more difficult to recover restitution for what had happened to them. In fact, many states passed laws, including Kentucky, that 
said restitution in a freedom suit could only be awarded in cases where the defendant had knowingly enslaved a free person. But if the uh, defendant could demonstrate that they had enslaved the person, quote, in good faith, uh, then no restitution claim could be made against them. And, you know, of course, not surprisingly, most of the defendants uh, who were like Zebulon Ward claimed that they had no idea that this person was free. And so restitution was seldom paid. Why should Americans today care about this story all these years later? How does it in any way, shape, or form have relevance to the national conversations we're having today? Henrietta Wood's story matters because it shows that enslaved and formerly enslaved people from the very beginning were making the case for restitution and repair. And uh, sometimes in the national conversation about reparations, for example, that long history of struggle gets lost, uh, that there were women like Belinda Sutton in the 1780s in Massachusetts who sued a former owner's estate for a pension because she argued his wealth had been accumulated through her labor. And there were women like Callie House who, in the 1890s, after Henrietta Wood, launched a grassroots movement to pressure Congress to award uh, what she called ex-slave pensions to uh, free people. So uh, there was a long history of struggle for reparations, and Henrietta Wood is a forgotten participant in that long tradition. She was someone who, uh, from the earliest possible moment after the Civil War, uh, when she could return to Cincinnati, she went to court and made the case that she was owed something for what had happened to her. And so uh, this is not something that uh, is just emerged in recent years, but uh, is a, a long history of struggle for, for reparations. I think her story also demonstrates that even a small amount of restitution could make a large difference in a particular family's life. That's what Wood's descendants showed in Chicago. Uh, her son was able to go to law school and purchase a house because of the suit that she had won. And it really set them on a path towards the, the middle class that most formerly enslaved people uh, struggled to achieve. Um, in some ways, Sims's story in Chicago is a story of what might have been or the path not taken had restitution and reparations been taken more seriously as a matter of policy during Reconstruction. In our next episode, we'll look more closely at the man that sold Henrietta Wood back into slavery and then helped to pioneer the convict leasing system that replaced slavery in much of the South. The Troubling Story of Zebulon Ward, next time on The Reckoning. The Reckoning was written and produced by me, Dan Gediman. Our production team includes editor Loretta Williams, producer Nancy Rosenbaum, and assistant producer Rhonda Rogers Van Dyke. We had legal assistance from the Dinsmore and SKO law firms. Our theme music was composed by Jacory 1200 Arthur, 
and voice actor Jackie Blue read the words of Henrietta Wood. Special thanks to the Filson Historical Society, Dr. George Wright, and especially to Val Jones. If you like this podcast, please go to Apple Podcasts or wherever you found our series and leave a review telling what you liked. That'll help others find this podcast in the future. For an even deeper dive into this subject matter, please visit our website, reckoningradio.org, where you can find a detailed bibliography, free educational curricula, and over 100 oral histories of formerly enslaved Kentuckians. That's reckoningradio.org. Thanks for listening.